Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Parliament launches a major inquiry into whole life carbon. The slavery links of city landmarks explored in a new Open City podcast. Sterling Prize winner Howarth Tompkins designs an industrial estate. And five years on from Zaha Hadid's death, we reflect on her legacy in London. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The Lundown. My special guest this week is Iwa Effiong. Iwa is a Belgo-Nigerian architect and writer based in London. Welcome to the show. Hi. Great to have you on board. Thanks for having me. Our first story was covered in the AJ, which has long been raising awareness of the urgent need to slash construction's enormous carbon footprint through its retro-first campaign. It's all to do with a new inquiry to consider how the construction industry, which is responsible for around 10% of UK carbon emissions, can meet net zero targets. Led by Parliament's Commons Environmental Audit Committee, it will look at why assessing embodied carbon in construction is not required by current government policy, despite ambitious building policies such as producing 300,000 homes a year, and relaxing planning rules to allow underused residential and commercial buildings to be demolished and rebuilt. The AJ has already submitted evidence from its Retro First campaign to the committee, which has renewed calls for the Treasury to correct the disparity between the zero rate of VAT on new builds and the full rate charged on retrofitting. The Independent UK Committee on Climate Change has previously asked the government to develop policies to minimise the whole life carbon impact of new buildings, including increasing the use of timber. As part of its inquiry, the Parliamentary Committee will be considering what progress has been made in this area, as well as examining the role for other sustainable materials such as wool construction. The launch of this new inquiry also coincides with Open City announcing a new nationwide awards programme celebrating outstanding long-term strategic care of existing buildings, infrastructure and open spaces. Iwa, what's this all about? Should we be surprised that here in the year 2021, and with a major climate emergency, it's taken this long for Parliament to get around to launching an inquiry into whole life carbon emissions in the construction industry? This is the point where the current government has realised that in order to reach their 2050 goals set out by the Paris Agreement, which is the world's first climate agreement within 
the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And because the COP26, which is happening later this year in Glasgow, um, the government has realised that the construction industry, which is a big kind of emitter of um, carbon, um, has been quite slow to kind of get with the times and really kind of address this issue of climate change. So it's, it's really uh, get your skates on time. Uh, yeah, that's exactly that. You know, um, to not consider embodied energy and whole life kind of carbon in construction is a crazy thing to kind of ignore. I mean, certainly um, a lot of people have responded to the launch of this inquiry as as like a good sign, you know, a good sign that Parliament is um, is putting some pressure on government. You know, one of these influential committees is like upping the ante and it's going to, um, you know, really uh, force them to sort of get their, get their game plan together. And I think one of the things is quite interesting, and I was listening to this at the, the AJ Summit, and they had um, the government's own chief uh, property advisor, Janet Young, uh, and she was saying that basically uh, when it comes to decarbonizing the 500 billion pound public estate, and by that we mean hospitals, schools, public housing, etc. Um, we need to be looking at retrofit. And that is basically obviously um, refurbishing and restoring existing buildings rather than knocking them down, and rebuilding them uh, from scratch. Um, do you get a feeling that like with all of this kind of heightened awareness and this pressure on the government that we're, we're possibly moving into uh, you know the end of comprehensive redevelopment that we're, we're going to see more and more people seeing the strong arguments for retrofit instead it's quite interesting that she speaks about this so kind of openly you know and the uk is is quite a good actor in this situation because it's cut emissions by 40 percent since the 90s it's also passed laws that commit to these 2050 goals and I think it's probably not the kind of end of comprehensive redevelopment. I think that will always be a thing that that plagues our cities. But um, it is kind of a step in the right direction that Janet Young is speaking about this. And it, it goes to the testament of the work that the AJ is, is doing with their kind of retrofit um, campaign. I mean, one of the things that um, really created a few ripples this week was the government announcing that it's going to scrap its two billion pound green homes grant scheme. And um, uh, I mean, I, I actually drilled into this one because I was interested in it. it, it some of the, the, the conditions are quite complicated and you have to use these approved suppliers uh, in order to draw on these funds to improve your home. And um, effectively, they the program only reached 10 percent of the 600,000 homes uh, which the Chancellor had promised would effectively get some retrofit benefits or eco-benefits like double glazing and ground source heat pumps, etc. I mean, given the, the flop, effectively, that was this programme, should we be a bit concerned about the ability of initiatives uh, to meet these environmental challenges or do we just need to, to, to place our faith in the next big thing? The Green Homes Grant was basically put in place to kind of entice people to um, retrofit and to um, improve the insulation and get eco-friendly boilers and um, install double glazing and draft proofing. And it was it's kind of similar to the Green New Deal that um, David Cameron brought in in uh, 2012, which also kind of flops, only reaching like 
14,000 of the 14 million homes. I think basically it's kind of scary because I think that the way in which to address the emissions of the construction industry and architecture is has to come from a top-down kind of um, process. And these the last two schemes that the government has bring in has basically flopped and uh, not been successful. But there, there is there is kind of hope because this money is going to kind of uh, local authorities and maybe they will have better luck in getting us to improve the, the efficiency of our homes. It certainly feels right now when we look at big debates within the built environment and the architecture media that we, we are kind of um, at uh, a turning point and perceptions and priorities are shifting and it's it's really really exciting and into this mix uh, you have uh, open city launching a new stewardship awards um, i mean would you say is it fair to say that the sort of things that we celebrate in architecture and design are shifting it's not about the big icons and it's not about the sort of landmark structures possibly it's about something deeper something longer term something which isn't about uh necessary cash returns but about society and the environment are you feeling that working in the field right now I mean, architecture is in a weird place where it's it's starting to contend with its um, kind of own complicity in the creation of waste. And I think this is really quite interesting. I think the point in which I realised that things were changing was maybe uh, in 2016 when Alejandro Alavena was the curator of the Venice Biennale, which was quite ironic because, I mean, if you've been to Venice, it's just an exercise in excess and opulence. But giving him this position meant that the wider kind of architectural culture was understanding the importance of um, architecture's role in creating sustainable um, cities. But it it did show that there was this, um, um, two years later, there was this point where I think it was a V&A brought Robin Hood Gardens to um, the Biennale. And obviously, was it last week or the week before where Lacaton and Vassel were awarded the Pritzker Prize? So it does seem like architectural culture is kind of shifting in this direction that we've kind of been talking about on and off for a couple of decades now. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's the emphasis to this, the idea of um, architecture as a, a capitalist um, construct, right? Where... Um, architecture is becomes this kind of commodity that's traded and it's not necessarily about um, creating shelter anymore. So I think I think that is quite positive. Before we dive into our second story, uh, you're listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We work to make the city more open, accessible and equitable. Open City is funded through generous donations from people like you, the Open City friends, who receive discounts on all our ticketed events, access to the Open City Film Club, special extended versions of the Open City podcast, access to our full interview archive, plus annual gifts as a thank you for supporting us. Sign up to be a friend from as little as £1.25 a week and receive access to all of this while supporting us to keep doing our work. Visit open-city.org.uk forward slash support for more information 
Our second item is all to do with a landmark new series by the Open City podcast investigating the links between transatlantic slavery and landmark buildings within the City of London. Titled Slavery and the City and launching on the 5th of April and running for three weeks, the series features expert voices reflecting on the complex history, interpretation and debates which come to light following a closer look at several key buildings involved in the slave trade. The sites contained in the three-part series include the Grade 1 listed Royal Exchange, the ancient Guildhall, which serves as the administrative centre of the Square Mile today, and the Jamaica Winehouse on St Michael's Alley. The new series is coming out just days after the publication of the government's Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities report, which has claimed that British society is not, quote, deliberately rigged against ethnic minorities. We have a clip from our show here. This series is about Britain's role in the transatlantic slave trade and its legacy embodied in the city of London. It is embedded in every brick. It's the underside of modernity. Through an in-depth examination of three key buildings in the capital. These spaces which we hold dear to us, they are diaspora spaces in a meaningful way, but also a temporal way. This series attempts to uncover Britain's role within the black diaspora. These are difficult histories. So you cannot separate racism from capitalism. One does not emerge without the other. This was a case about property, not about human beings. I'm Selassie Setifer, and this is Slavery in the City. Ewa, what's this all about? You've had a sneak preview of the series. Was there anything about it that resonated with you in particular? This idea of hidden histories is always quite an interesting one, right? The idea that the history that we all take for granted is actually this kind of propagandist project by whoever's in power. And the reality of the situation, the truth is something that's hidden from us because um, these situations are a lot less palatable than um, we would like. I mean, especially in the case of like the British Empire and its systematic exploitation of its colonies. Um, I mean, certainly... You know, the series does a lot to orientate ideas of racism and colonialism to our cities and helps to um, unpack them. I mean, for you, why do you think this is important to consider when it comes to architecture within this conversation? I think people forget architecture's association with power. It's a discipline that only really exists because of patronage. And these patrons in the past, the people that have commanded a lot of power. And there was a sizable kind of period of the last millennium where this power was amassed by the exploitation of other. And these others were normally in places, as you say, that are far away. And the people that inhabited these lands were, I mean, to say that they were mistreated is an understatement. But the exploitation often results in exploits, which are manifested in bricks and mortar in uh, our cities, the cities in the Western world. And uh, these are constant reminders of this mistreatment to some. And, and But for most people, it's something that they're happy to kind of live with and, and um, kind of engage with without really kind of understanding the implications of that architecture. 
Um, I mean, one of the discussions that that's in the podcast, in a way that it sort of builds on on some of the uh, the Black Lives Matter protests that we saw last summer following the death of George Floyd, and that is to do with the difference between how we address buildings that were built off the back of the slave trade, like for example the Royal Exchange, but then also statues memorialising slave traders. So, for example, we saw a lot of quite frankly explosive focus on on statues right and really powerful images and really kind of transformational moments potentially but not so much on uh buildings uh themselves um obviously you can't pick up a building and chuck it in the river um, i wouldn't want to see that what why is there this difference i think the difference between the statues and the buildings is that the statues commemorate these deplorable deplorable people these people that have amassed a bunch of wealth off the back of um the kind of pillaging and the murdering and the rape of of other places right and these buildings though they kind of stand as exaltation to these individuals they have an opportunity a chance to atone for their past transgressions and I think that is the difference between them. But it's also, we're kind of going into the territory where we're talking about the morality of inanimate objects. Um, now, what is striking is that Open City's Slavery and the City podcast series is coming out in the very same week that the government's Race and Ethnic Disparities Commission has published its own report on the legacy of colonialism and slavery in the UK. Uh, we're recording London on Wednesday afternoon. The report was published at 11am. Uh, but already uh, there has been uh, quite uh, some ripples caused uh, by this report. It's been accused of uh, downplaying the seriousness of the legacy of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, the Shadow Equality Minister, uh, which is uh, Marsha de Cordova, MP for Battersea in London, uh, tweeted earlier that the report was, quote, putting a positive spin on slavery and empire. Dr. Halima Begum, uh, who is chief executive of the Runnymede Trust, also has told Politics Home, quote, I'm absolutely flabbergasted to see the slave trade apparently redefined as the Caribbean experience, as though it's something Thomas Cook should be selling. Um, Ewa, what do you think of this report? It's easier to speak about it in these terms. It's easier to speak about um, the slave trade as the Caribbean experience because when you do that, you're not kind of rocking the foundation of nationalism in this country. I mean, I do have to say that I'm not British, so I, I don't know how much I can actually talk about this, but... As a night, I'm my parents are Nigerian, and we very much understand the um, importance of colonialism in in our lives. And I think when you have a government that's so kind of based on the idea of Grand Britannia, of course you have to bring out a report that says this, because w what happens if you tell the truth? You know, suddenly um, those Union Jacks don't look have a different kind of connotation when they're um, hanging from people's windows in rural areas. 
Our third item was covered in the AJ and across London's built environment media. It's all to do with the Sterling Prize winning architects Howard Tompkins, famous for restoring and upgrading some of London's and the UK's best known theatres, winning planning permission for a £3 million industrial estate. The London Borough of Newham's Strategic Development Committee last week granted planning permission for the practices proposals for Albert Island in the Royal Docks. Backed by the developer London and Regional and due to start on site in 2022, the scheme will see around 70,000 square metres of employment space created on a brownfield site. Howard Tompkins' plans feature a seven-storey ideas factory uh, that will host startup businesses and educational uses. Uh, the proposals also include a pair of connected four-storey warehouses, two single-floor commercial storage buildings, another large warehouse, a car park, and new electricity substation uh, and 16 homes will also uh, be created half of which will also uh, will be available at affordable social rent Ewa, what's this all about should we be surprised to see such a prestigious practice working on industrial buildings something which are typically very very sort of prosaic and not very low quality i mean this really shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody the uh, draft london pan of 2017 set out um ambitions with regard to London's industrial land and I think this was basically no net loss so the retention of existing land and in some cases the intensification of industrial um, use on certain plots shouldn't be a surprise. In a city where land is valued so highly there's often a tendency for industrial land to um, magically kind of disappear as owners start to kind of seek profit from the land in which they own. Um, I think it's important to understand that this industrial land is essential to uh, the creation and the maintaining of a sustainable city. And uh, that's why practice is just like, we made that, have done studies on co-location and tentification of industrial land um, that was uh, commissioned by the GLA. And having Hayworth Tompkins uh, kind of do this project kind of makes sense um, because, well, that's how the city's going. That industrial land is essential to it and it's one of their kind of growing sectors. So, I mean, I'm not really that surprised. But my heart did sink when, because I think in the article, when the first thing it says is like ideas factory, which is kind of archi-speak for a really large space that we haven't really thought about the the use. But then when I kind of looked at um, the visual, the section uh, specifically in the article, there wasn't any kind of big oversized kind of artworks, which makes me quite happy because they normally, normally all these kind of factories and industrial land that people kind of design are somehow... Um, storage spaces for really large artworks. So I'm I'm glad Hayworth Tompkins have not gone that route, down that route, and actually designed in, an industrial building. I think it's great. Yeah, I think it's interesting that that ideas factory because it's an unfortunate term to use because what they've really created is a flatted 
factory. And that is something which was actually happening in a lot of cities around the world in the 1960s, where they were trying to sort of like rationalize these post-industrial spaces. Uh, there's one that you can see um, quite near to Broadway Market, for example, by YRM. It's called the Arder Street Workshops. And it looks like a block of flats, but it's not. It's actually a block of small artisan workshops, effectively. So it's, you know, it's potentially um, a really uh, exciting typology. And, um, and I think also, if you look back, uh, to like the Olympics, we had things like the broadcast, International Broadcast Centre, and everybody was saying it could end up being impossible to repurpose this. It could end up just being a big old empty shed. And actually then it's now become here east, uh, where there is uh, lots of different uses in it. It's been carved up quite intelligently. I mean, do you, do you get the feeling that as an architecture sector in, in London, for example, we're getting much more skilled and adept at doing this sort of stuff? I think so. And I think... What I've seen in the last uh, three years is maybe more excitement around the subject. I think um, industrial buildings are normally kind of low design and and uh, not really that exciting in terms of kind of um, architecture with a capital A. But I, I see the people that are kind of engaging with this typology, engaging with this program, um, engage with it and show real excitement to the prospects of of delivering these buildings. Our fourth and final story hasn't really been picked up much in the architectural media, but it's all to do with this week being exactly five years since the architect Zaha Hadid passed away. Hadid died of a heart attack in a hospital in Miami where she was being treated for bronchitis. Her sudden death in 2016 shocked the profession, with many taking to social media to express their thoughts on the inspirational architect. These tributes were brought together in an AJ article at the time. French architect Odile Deck praised Hadid for, quote, opening up doors for so many women in architecture. The RIBA president at the time, Jane Duncan, said... She leaves behind a body of work from buildings to furniture, footwear and cars that delight and astound people all around the world. Hadid's built legacy in London is formidable and it includes the London Aquatic Centre, the Sterling Prize winning Evelyn Grace Academy, uh, the Serpentine Sackler Gallery, Science Museum Mathematics Laboratory and the Roker Gallery. Um, she also left behind an architecture practice, which continues to win work and deliver landmark buildings around the world. Um, following her death, some of her legacy was overshadowed by a legal battle between the executors of her £100 million estate and her successor, uh, the sometimes outspoken practice principal Patrick Schumacher. Uh, but that's now been resolved. Um, but also prior to her death, uh, Hadid had expressed her admiration of uh, the great post-war brutalist architects and the architects of pioneering uh, social housing. In fact, some of her earliest projects uh, were social housing uh, projects. Uh, and she was also one of the several high-profile architects who campaigned against the demolition of Alison and Peter Smithson's Robin Hood Gardens estate. Ewart, what's it all about? Do you think London has suffered uh, since Zaha Hadid's death as a result of losing perhaps one of London's greatest architects, you know, who at the age of just 65 was possibly reaching their professional prime? I, I think it is a loss because I think as architect and architecture adjacent people, we all remember when, where we were and what we were doing when we found out that she had passed. I think in answer to your second question, I think both yes and no, depending on your perspective, 
um, London has suffered because it has one less stark attacks that attracts the best kind of architecture and talent from all across the world. But on the other hand, um, Zaha's work was kind of delivered internationally. So I think it's not necessarily just a loss for London, but maybe a loss for the whole world. I think there's, it's interesting. It sort of comes back to the beginning of the show. We were talking about these like great shifts, like this new shift on how public housing and uh, focus on it and um, environmentalism. And like the Zaha, because her career was cut short so early, we didn't really get to see uh, how she would have adapted and responded uh, to, to the world as it changes. Um, I mean, one of Zaha Hadid's first ever built projects was actually social housing. It was a substantial block in Berlin constructed as part of the 1987 International Building Exhibition. And it took the form of a kind of golden prowl with balconies at the back. It's quite a cool thing to look at online. Um, I, mean, I put this out on Twitter earlier today and got a bit of a, a sort of pushback from some people. But... Um, I mean, is it, is it fanciful to, to think that Hadid might have become a public housing champion were she still around? I mean, I think it's great um, to hear stories of her support for social housing. And obviously she started out uh, with creating social housing. Um, but I also think that she didn't build her business model on the delivering of social housing. So... It's great that she was a champion. I would have liked to see her do more actual social housing. Now that the legal battle has been resolved and the bulk of these legacy assets have been transferred to the Zaha Hadid Foundation, this is something that's going to focus on creating a museum, it's going to be doing awards, it's going to be focusing on education for young women. Um, do you think we could possibly be at a moment where now a deeper appreciation of this unique legacy could begin? I, I think so. Zaha Hadid was and I think continues to be an inspiration to women of colour in architecture. And from what we've talked about, um, she seemed to kind of move through the industry unapologetically herself, kind of refusing to conform and make herself more palatable to the status quo. And I think the stories of her extravagance are kind of go hand in hand with stories of her focus and her dedication to her work. Regardless of where you kind of stand on the parametricism debate, I think it's hard to ignore the importance of her work. Um, her early works even are still kind of widely cited. And I think the general consensus is one of admiration. Um, I, I suppose when I started my career in architectural journalism, um, the sort of forms that were being produced by Zaha Hadid architects were like, you know, that was the future you know that what you know, this was what's happening next whereas now um i don't know if you look at the kind of excitement around like peter barber architects uh where it's like it's like brick and it's arches and um it's not something which is like aesthetically rooted in in digital technology um is there a feeling that we've we've kind of we've moved beyond that it's, it's no longer a future frontier and then also at the same time that kind of revolutionary potential of form uh, that belief in that we can just keep on pushing these boundaries has also evaporated. I think I'm probably going to get a lot of heat on Twitter uh, for this, but um, parametricism kind of is a result of people kind of understanding that they could um, use technology and processing power to create form. And that was, we did that because it was new. And now we kind of understand that we're going back towards a 
kind of focus on, dare I say, like the experiential nature of architecture, and it's more about experience and and uh, humanism. So I think I think it's it's like the kind of contrast between kind of 2001 Space Oddity and Solaris in so much that there was a vision of the future that was based on technology and now we understand that the future is probably going to be this idea of human experience that's kind of aided by technology and not maybe um, determined by it. Iwa, it's been an immense pleasure uh, discussing the big stories in London architecture this week with you on the London. Um, where can our listeners uh, hear, um, keep up to speed on uh, your writing and your other projects? Where should they go? I mean, I guess you can follow me on Instagram. Uh, my handle is at EWAFIOM, which is E-W-A-E-F-F-I-O-M. Or if you want to kind of engage in kind of debate I think you should probably get at me on Twitter. My handle is EWFM. Thank you very much. Thank you, and hope to have you on the show again soon. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.